Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Towards the middle of Romans chapter 6, Paul asked this rhetorical question in verse 15, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And he answered it, of course, by no means. Ever since he raised that question, we've been kind of working through the answer. In the rest of chapter 6, Paul's answer is essentially a paraphrase of the words we just heard from Luke's gospel, that you cannot serve two masters. At the rest of chapter 6, he describes the difference, our former service to sin and our new service to God, and how antithetical those two things are. But it does leave uh, one thing unanswered, which has to do with our current relationship to the law. If we're not under the law any longer, well, what does that mean exactly? Like, how do we stand in relation to the law of God? How do you connect those dots if it's not the way it used to be? What is it now? Paul's going to get into that question here at the beginning of chapter 7, and he's going to do it by giving us an analogy, which he loves to do. So this is chapter 7, starting in verse 1, and we're going to look at uh, the first six verses. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. As Paul comes to speak to us about our relationship to the law, now that we're no longer under it, he seems to feel that this is the part of the uh, the explanation that is the most delicate. And as a result, he addresses his hearers, his readers, as brothers, as adelphoi, as a word that in Greek has the meaning that, that brothers would have had in English in the past. It's more inclusive than the way that we use it now. Uh, now your ESV might have a footnote saying brothers and sisters. It's meant to be kind of a broader inclusion than that. But it's a term of affection. And it's a term that, that Paul hasn't actually used since chapter 1 of Romans. And now he returns to it in this context, emphasizing with a personal warmth the words that he's about to speak to us. His brothers and sisters, those who are 
fellow believers, those who know the law, he says, those who understand the way of the old covenant and now need to learn how the new relationship works because things have changed. We're no longer under the law. That means we no longer face the condemnation that the law brought about for our sin. But it actually means more than that. To be out from under the law does not just mean to be freed from the condemnation, but also means we are freed to live our lives differently than we lived them before. At best, when we were living under the law, we could strive for outward conformity. At best, you could try to keep the rules. You could try to, uh, under your own strength, make that work. But now that's not the way things function. Now we have the Spirit guiding us inwardly. So there's a new way to serve. We have an inward work of the Spirit, which gives us a new way to serve. In the first four verses, Paul gives us this interesting analogy that helps us think about how our relationship to the law has changed. Do you not know, brothers, from speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? That's the general principle. The law is only binding for as long as you're alive. If you want to, you can sentence dead people to prison time, but don't expect them to show up to serve their sentence. The law is no longer binding. That's just common sense. Then he applies that principle to a specific case that we are meant to enter into and empathize with. And then finally, he draws an application from it. His analogy has to do with marriage and the nature of marriage and the way that the status of this woman who who remarries would be judged entirely differently depending on one fact, whether or not her first husband is still alive. You would see the same action in an entirely different way depending on whether or not that former husband lives or dies. So yet again, Paul is doing this thing that he does from time again. He's using marriage as an analogy to explain to us some spiritual thing. And it leads you to wonder, as it does many people, why are Christians so fixated on marriage? Why are Christians always harping on marriage? Why is that such an obsession for us? Why are Christians always saying that marriage is what God says it is and that we don't have the power to change that relation? Why is that? Exactly. Well, there are a couple of reasons why marriage is so central in Christian teaching. One of them is that like work and like Sabbath rest, marriage is something that God instituted before the fall. Something theologians call a creation ordinance. Right? The first marriage, first instruction in marriage takes place in Genesis 2, prior to the fall in Genesis 3. So it's something that comes prior to the entry of sin. And it represents an ideal. It's interesting, too, that when you go back and you look at the institution of marriage, there is an instruction, a rationale that is given that is uh, beautiful, that is romantic, that we still 
quote today, and it has to do with the two becoming one, right? That the two who have been apart will come together, will cling to one another, will leave behind those former relations and now enter into this new bond in marriage. Which is interesting because what that looks like is a diversity being brought into a unity and yet a unity that doesn't erase the individuality of its members. In other words, it looks like something kind of Trinitarian. When we talk about the nature of God, that God is three in one, that the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are all distinct personages and yet are all one God. There is a unity that does not erase the diversity that is brought together. As we've said before, the, the, the unity and the diversity are equally ultimate. One doesn't have priority over the other. And isn't it fascinating that in the, the very first human relationship, you would see something similar taking place. That the God who made all things and made human beings in his image would make a man and a woman and bring them together into a kind of bond where unity and diversity exist in that interesting tension that got a lot more tense after the fall. So in marriage, we see aspects of the person of God, of, of our image-bearing, represented in a way that they are not represented elsewhere. And that's one of the reasons why we take this so seriously. Another reason is because New Testament authors return to marriage over and over again as an analogy for understanding other kinds of relationships, specifically the relationship between Christ and the church. If you want to understand the relationship between Jesus and the church, the analogy that you're pointed to is the relationship between a husband and a wife. The New Testament authors do this all the time. Paul does it constantly. Christ is the husband, and the church is his bride. In John's Gospel, in, in Revelation 21, John uses this language in that sort of final, uh, consummating moment in this great narrative. At the beginning of Revelation 21, he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband's. There's plenty of practical instruction in Scripture about marriage as well. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 gives lots of instruction about marriage. But even when you're getting the practical instruction, it's not unusual to slip from, from practical, here's how to have a marriage, into theological, here's the relationship between Christ and the church. That's exactly what happens in Ephesians 5. When you're getting all of this language you know, about the relationship between uh, wives and husbands and the duties they have towards one another, and then Paul says, I'm speaking of Christ and the church. Showing that connection between the two. Paul, when he spoke to the New Testament church, the church that he was active in building, regarded himself as a kind of matchmaker. If you look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you, 
since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. It's like he, he did the ceremony. He said, I'm, I'm the pastor who married you, and I'm really concerned about the relationship because I married you to Jesus, and I don't like to see you stray. Right? That's the language that he's using. And, and when New Testament authors speak this way, they're not doing something new or something unusual because this is exactly the way that the prophets of the Old Testament spoke about Israel and God. Israel and God as being in a covenant relation in a kind of marriage. And so New Testament authors naturally pick this up. And so that's what Paul does here. He refers to a kind of another aspect of marriage, another slice of the picture to explain to us our relationship to the law. So the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. That's that common sense general principle. And then he applies it by giving us like a case study. Like, let me give you an example. And the example is that a wife is bound to her husband for as long as he lives, but after his death, she is free. She's no longer bound to him. That widow is under no obligation to continue to, to follow his rules. Don't feel too hopeful, wives, at this moment, thinking in anticipation of the day when you'll be freed from uh, the yoke of the husband you currently find yourself bonded to. But that's the point, right? Sometimes we talk um, very romantically, you know, very romantically about, oh, you know, sure, if, if you died I wouldn't remarry. I would, there's no one else in the world for me, anything like that, which is great, which is great. But Paul's speaking from the standpoint of the law and obligation, right? If, if you were married and then one day you're like, you know what? I think I'm just going to marry him instead. You would look at that and you would see that as a violation of that marriage covenant. Right? You'd be breaking the, the oath, the vows that you took. That would be wrong. But you could do exactly the same thing after the death of the husband and there would be nothing wrong about it. Everything would be perfectly right. And everything, you know, the, the right or the wrongness of it, it just hinges on, on one thing, the death of the husband or his life. You get the idea. So everything depends on the death or life of the husband to whom you are bound. And that's true of the husband as well. And that's true of the husband too, and Paul could have flipped it the other way. But it's interesting that he doesn't, that here what you're meant to do is put yourself in the position of the wife specifically. You think of yourself as the wife in that relationship, which I don't think is an accident because the wife in all of these analogies is us. And all these analogies represents the role of the church. And so that's what Paul is, is doing here. He's putting us in that relationship. And then when he comes to apply it, he says, likewise, my brothers, he's basically saying, you are in a sort of similar situation. You were once under the yoke of sin. You were w once under this law of sin. You were under this condemnation. But now you've died to it, You've been freed from it, and you have been joined to another. And that's what's changed. It's as if the old husband has died, 
and the new husband, Christ, has come along, and everything now is transformed. So Paul is asking the brothers to see themselves in the position of wives who have been set free by the death of their husbands. Just like the wife who's freed from her husband by death, we have been freed from the law through Christ's death. And now we belong to him, we're joined to him in order, Paul says, that we might bear fruit for God. Now, in chapter 6, he used that that language of bearing fruit already. And when Paul talks about bearing fruit, he uses that word fruit to describe uh, actions or results. The, The fruit are the things that we do as a consequence or the things that are done in us, the the things that are produced within us as a result of the work of the Spirit. So when we served sin, as we saw last time, we did bear fruit. There was fruit from that service, but that fruit led to death. Now that we are in union with Christ, we continue to bear fruit. But that fruit now points to life. That fruit produces life. Entirely different. So bearing fruit is a term that is used oftentimes in Scripture about crops. Uh, the, the land bears fruit. There's a, a sense of cultivation. Also, fertility. Right? And this is something we still talk about as well. Um, the, uh, the Jesus is referred to uh, in relation to Mary as the fruit of thy womb. Right? There's a, a childbearing layer of this bearing fruit as well. Literally, crops, metaphorically, children are produced from this union. Think of the outcome of our union as a church with Christ. The, The children of that union, so to speak, metaphorically, are the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit that break out in our lives as a result. So what Paul is doing in this analogy, he's giving us like a powerful way of understanding our changed relationship when it comes to the law. That the law is your old husband, and now he's dead, and you can move on with your life. Now the implication, of course, is that it wasn't a perfect relationship. And of course, our relationship to the law wasn't perfect. It wasn't the law's fault. It was our fault. And so we made something bad out of something that was actually good in itself. But if you think about it this way, then our constant return to legalism, the constant temptation to live moralistic lives, to go to the law and say, okay, these are the rules I will keep so that God will be pleased with me. The analogy suggests that's like going like back to the grave of your dead husband, who you've been freed to and trying to live under his yoke, pining for the dead instead of living for the living. That's the absurdity of it in relation to us. The implication is actually worse than that because what Paul is saying is that when we make that return to the law, when we go back trying to prove our righteousness merely through obedience, we are pining for a relationship that was killing us. 
It was being set free from that relationship that gave us life. And yet, sometimes we feel this self-destructive urge to go back. That's something you can relate to in human relationships. This happens all the time. People are constantly set free from destructive relationships and then live their lives afterwards in a weird way, pining for them, wanting to go back to the way things were, even though you see what it was, even though you see the self-destruction that was there, a, a, a weird, dark part of you wants to return to the comfort of it, the security of it, the certainty of it. Paul is saying that's like going back to the grave, dwelling on the one who is now dead to you instead of living in the light of the freedom that you now have. Once he's made the comparison, he gives us a contrast between two ways of living. Like the way we used to live and the way we live now. Life in the flesh and life in the spirit. And the contrast is total. For while we were living in the flesh, he says, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We once lived in the flesh. We now live in the spirits. When we lived in the flesh, our lives were dominated by what he calls here our sinful passions. And we've met up with these passions before, these passions that rule us, these desires of the flesh that overwhelm us that we once submitted ourselves to and never questioned the goodness of them. Never questioned whether the things that seemed right and natural to us were in fact corrupted, disordered desires. These passions ruling within us, working through our members, bore fruit of death. Paul said this in chapter 6, and he summarizes it for us in chapter 7. That living in the flesh, under the thumb of our sinful passions, leads to death. And that's how we live. Not only did we live that way, but hearkening back to Paul's words at the end of Romans 1, we also gave approval to those who practice those things. We know them to be wrong, and yet we do them ourselves, and we approve of those who do them with us. And that's what life in the flesh was like, and its end result was death. These passions, he says, were aroused by the law. And you have to wonder, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that God's law aroused these corrupted, disordered desires? Well, if you think about it, it's not so difficult, right? Because our disordered desires, when you are corrupt, when you have this tendency to twist things, you can take the best things in the world and you can make them into something ugly, something wrong. The law in particular has a characteristic because the law not only commands positively, but also negatively. The law allows, but it also forbids. And to our corrupted human nature, to forbid something is to make it desirable. Right? That's the, the danger of saying the stage is off limits. 
to children. You run the risk of making it the most desirable place to be. For a certain kind of person to hear that this is prohibited means that must be the place I want to be. I will be freest when I'm in the place that has been forbidden to me. Right? That all makes sense to us on the heart level. And that's the sense in which the law arouses these desires. It gives us an occasion. If God says, do not do this, your heart says, oh, what's he trying to hide? You can't eat that fruit? I bet I know what the best fruit in the garden is. It's got to be the one that's been prohibited, right? And the logic of that is compelling, but it's disordered. That's the life we once lived, but no more. We've been set free from it by Christ. And the life in the Spirit is very different. right? Paul summarizes the difference, but he also adds something new in this expression of it in verse 6. He gives us a little bit of a new insight, something he will develop more. Uh, one thing that he's told us already he repeats here, is that we've been released from the law, which held us captive. We were once held captive by the law. These corrupted desires once dominated us, but it is no longer the case. Like That is not the way we live now. We continue to sin, yes, but not under that same compulsion which once existed. We have, as he said in chapter 6, been set free from sin. But now he adds something. We've been set free from sin... And now we serve in the new way of the Spirit. There's a new way to serve, and that way is to serve in the Spirit. Not the old way of the written code. He contrasts it. It is no longer the old way of the written code. It is now the new way of the Spirit. And the contrast between the two, you might think of it as a covenantal contrast. right? It's the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant of law could not save us. It could condemn us but it could not save us. It revealed our condemnation, but that's all. The new covenant saves us. It saves us from our sin. Now that believers have died to the law, we serve in the newness of the liberty of the freedom that the Holy Spirit has authored within us. That's why in 2 Corinthians 3.6, Paul says, that we are ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's an easy phrase to misinterpret. A lot of people, when they hear that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, they read that and they think what Paul must be getting at is this. If you're too literal, if you follow like the, the, the literal meaning of things, that'll kill you. Instead, you want to be more figurative. Don't, don't follow the law literally. Don't follow Scripture literally. Uh, follow it in spirit. Kind of the, the gist of it, the thrust of it. Don't get, get caught up on particulars. Just kind of go with, with the overall flow of it. And, and that doesn't kill. That gives life. Something like that. That's not what Paul is saying here. What he's saying here is that the new covenant gives life through the Spirit. There is life for us through the power of the Spirit. And it is in this new covenant 
of the gospel. This new covenant which Jesus Christ administers. The letter that kills is the written code. It is the law that condemns. Life comes from Jesus Christ, from the power of His Spirit. So what is the new way of the Spirit? What does the new way of the Spirit look like? How does that change the way that we live? Well, rather than outward adherence to a written code, believers now are guided inwardly by the Spirit. And that's true all along the line. Occasionally, we're conscious of this. Occasionally, when we talk, we allow for the, the work of the Holy Spirit. So, for example, when we're talking about justification, uh, we will allow for the work of the Holy Spirit when it comes to regeneration. We'll say, the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart. And he takes this heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh. That's what the Holy Spirit does, which is true as far as it goes. But the Spirit does more than that. The Spirit is more involved. In fact, the Spirit is so involved that it is fair to say that there would be no salvation apart from the work of the Spirit. Like in every aspect of our salvation, we can see the work of the Holy Spirit in quickening us and calling us and in testifying inwardly to us of the reliability of the gospel that has been proclaimed. All of that is work of the Holy Spirit, and it doesn't stop there. Once belief is kindled within us, we begin this new life of the Spirit in which the Holy Spirit guides us, continues to work within us. So that Paul can say in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work His good pleasure. Be obedient, be faithful, do the work, because it is God who works in you. You see that? It's not that the Spirit saves us, and then subsequently we live a life of obedience. It's that the Spirit saves us, and then keeps us on that path. So that Paul encourages us to walk in the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, to be sanctified by the Spirit. That is the new life that we have been called to. That is why the virtues of this new life Paul describes as fruit of the Spirit. These are all consequences of what the Holy Spirit is doing in us, results of what is happening within us. We'll dig more deeply into the meaning of life in the Spirit as we go forward, but what you need to remember for now is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is supernatural. It is not an intellectual proposition. It's not merely about the acquisition of knowledge. It is a work of the Holy Spirit supernaturally within us from beginning to end that leads eventually to glory. And that's what life in the Spirit looks like. We use uh, our willpower. 
at times. We use our reason at times. We use, Lord willing, some wisdom at times as we live our lives. And yet, all of this is the Spirit working within us in this new life. This is what we have. Not only deliverance from the penalty of sin, but also spiritual power to walk in the path of Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.